One of the things I really like about that video from the Bible Project is how it brought out that we have a choice in the way we look at the world and in what we see. We have the choice that we can see it according to appearances, uh, that there really isn't enough to go around. I was reading uh, this week that when it comes to food, Americans, as on the whole, throw away about 40% of the food that we have, 40%. And it feels like there isn't enough food to go around when we throw away 40%. Our feeling's wrong, isn't it? It's not correct. Sometimes the way we look at the world actually matters for how we live the rest of our lives. Sometimes that actually controls the way we behave and the hope that we have. And in terms of generosity, that's certainly true. If I give away from what I have, I will have less. And so doesn't it follow that my life will be less? And we find that when we, we give things away, when we practice generosity, that's often not the case. We have more. Or at the very least, our life is more, even if our material things are less. One of the reasons that's appropriate for us this morning is because today we want to, we're in the middle of a series talking about, well, what are these things that we do at church? What does it mean to come to church? What does it mean to belong to a church? Why do we do the things that we do at church? And today we want to talk about the Lord's Supper. This is one of the most important things that we do in fellowship with each other. And it's one of those things that's meant to point beyond what we can see into a deeper truth and a deeper reality. Preaching about the Lord's Supper is a little bit difficult because there's no place in Scripture where it says, here are the six things, I'm making up that number, but here are the six things that communion, that the Lord's Supper means. If you're not tracking with me right now, by the way, the Lord's Supper is when we pass out the, the juice and the bread and we say, Jesus said, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus took the cup and he poured it out and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That particular practice that we have, which is one of our most significant moments of worship together as Christians. And this is something, again, where Scripture doesn't just say, well, this is exactly what that means. And so we have to kind of look and read between the lines a little bit. And here in Matthew chapter 26, that's really a great place to start. Matthew chapter 26. And what I want you to, I want to set the scene for us a little bit. This is near the end of the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is the story of Jesus' uh, life and ministry, his death and his resurrection. There are 28 chapters in the book of Matthew, which means that uh, we're almost at the very end. And in Matthew chapter 26, this is right before Jesus is arrested, taken to the cross, and he dies. So this is the last meal that Jesus shares with his disciples before his death, which is why we call it the Last Supper. Uh, it's one of the most famous paintings I think it was Leonardo da Vinci ever painted. By the way, do you know what Jesus said to his 12 disciples at the Last Supper? He said, you guys, get on this side if you want to be in the painting. Right? Okay. Sorry. We've been practicing dad jokes in our family lately. That was a good one. <clears throat> Jesus uh, is sharing this meal with his disciples, but it's not just any meal, and it's not even just his last meal with them. It's also the Passover meal. And as you heard at the beginning of the service, this is probably the foundational 
event and foundational celebration that explains everything else that the Jewish people did together. It celebrates that they were slaves in Egypt, and then God sent the ten plagues, and at the end of that tenth plague, Pharaoh kicked them out and said, you're not my slaves anymore, just leave. And there were a number of things that were significant about how they observed this meal. They, they used unleavened bread. Now, unleavened bread means bread without yeast. And I don't know if you've ever had bread without yeast. I know you have, actually. You ever had a saltine? Yeah, bread without yeast. It's awful, isn't it? There are other sorts of bread without yeast you can make, but it doesn't have that, that kind of delicious softness and, and wonderful bit that bread has. I know lots of us in here like bread, right? We try not to eat too much because it's all just carbs. This is, I guess, our dietary announcement for the morning. But this is not your favorite kind of bread, bread without yeast. And God said, I want you to make your bread, the bread you eat, it's going to be without yeast, so you can remember that when I delivered you, you didn't even have time to wait for the bread to rise. That's how quickly it happened. And so they did this. And then they, they had actually four glasses of wine. And before you start thinking, wow, that's a lot of wine, I want you to remember in the ancient world, wine was much, much, much less alcoholic than it is today. Four glasses of wine may not have even gotten you very tipsy, much less drunk. They shared four glasses of wine together that were fellowship with each other. Uh, if you remember, Joshua uh, Kerr preached a sermon for us on Jesus turning the water to wine uh, a while ago. And remember, he said about what wine is what you have when you're celebrating, right? It's something that you share with each other because you're joyful about what's happening. Same thing here. So Jesus is taking this Passover meal and he's using it to communicate something new to his disciples. He said, you thought, you thought this meal was an end in itself, but it's not. It actually was always meant to point forward toward an even greater thing that God would do. And it's about to happen in my life, is what Jesus is saying. So what do we learn then about this meal from Matthew chapter 26? Well, first, when we come together to celebrate the Last Supper together, the Lord's Supper together, we need to remember that it's Jesus who provides for the meal. He is our host at the Last Supper, at, at communion. Jesus is our host. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. On the first day of the festival unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, well, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him the teacher says... My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Jesus makes the arrangements, doesn't he? He says, I'll, I'll tell you where to go. Here's the guy you're going to talk to. And we have no idea if Jesus maybe had talked to this guy before and made arrangements. Or I think what's more likely is Jesus was saying, hey, I've got authority. Go and tell this, this member of the household of Israel that the rabbi Jesus is coming tonight. He needs to make his place available to us. Jesus provides for the celebration. Jesus uh, not only provides for it, but he, he calls his disciples to do it with him. I'm going to provide for this, for us together. These disciples, Jesus' 12 disciples, most likely had their own families. And yet Jesus says, you will celebrate with me today. 
And it's not because Jesus didn't care about their families, but because he wanted them to understand something about what happens to you when you follow Jesus. You belong to a new family. He provided the place. And he provides our place still today. The Lord has called us here and provided for us. You know, we, of course, uh, this church was built, this sanctuary, about 65 years ago. Does that sound about right, Tom? Pretty close, about 65 years ago. And we still remember uh, a number of the folks who contributed to make this possible, who designed it. Someone was just here visiting a week or two ago and was, was talking about the Fletchers and, and their role and how they helped this place come about. I've heard the stories about, well, were we going to have pillars or not have pillars in the church? There are some competing visions in different places. There's this whole story of how we built this church. But the truth is that we built this church because, first of all, God put us here. And we're in the process of rebuilding large portions of it in these days, aren't we? We just put a new roof on the whole church, on this building and the next building and the Sunday school buildings, everything but the bathrooms for some reason. And now we've got this new, you know, we're rebuilding the church and we're doing it. When we do that, we went to our own checking accounts and such, didn't we? Uh, we went to where we keep our money, whatever that would be. We made contributions. But let me ask you, how did you earn those resources? I know you did. I know you earned it, but how did you do it? You worked, didn't you? Uh, who gave you the ability to work? That's from God. Who gave you your talents on purpose? I am going to make my daughter, Jennifer, this way with these skills. I'm going to make my son, Mike, in this way with these skills. It was God who did it. Who gave us the world that we work in and that we work on? Does anyone here, if you manufacture something, do you make it out of thin air? Tom, you've got the plastics plant. When you put together the, the different plastics and such, did you just, do you go in somewhere and you do some sort of magic trick and all the raw materials appear? No, where, where does that come from? You have suppliers, don't you? They send you the raw materials, and those suppliers, they get the raw materials maybe from somewhere else, or, or maybe they dig them out of the ground, or, or however that works. But all of our resources that we use, they came from God originally, didn't they? Because he created them. He is the only one who creates, as the theologians say in Latin, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. The rest of us create out of what God has made. Everything that we have comes from God. He has provided this place to us. He has provided the resources that we use. And not only this, we are here because Jesus has called us. What does the old hymn say? I once was lost, but now am found. You get the passive and the, the active voices of the verbs there. I was lost. But I was found. God sought me, and he bought me with his redeeming blood, as another hymn says, and he brought us here on purpose. Our lives are not outside of his control and his purposes. And then not only did Jesus provide for the meal, he administered the meal, didn't he? He, he 
stood up at the front of the feast and he explained what was going on. And actually, Jesus in some ways just follows the traditions that everyone else had. The, the, the family patriarch or whoever was premier or preeminent among the people gathered would do some explaining about different things. One of the kids would ask, oh, well, why are we eating this bread? And, and then the father would stand up and explain. But Jesus went farther in each of these things. There's some things where you just do it and Jesus went on explaining anyway. Jesus was the first pastor. They always have something to say about everything, right? Jesus is the one who administers the meal and explains what it all means. And he continues to do that for us today. You know, in our tradition, we actually don't allow, we wouldn't encourage you to go home and then with your family just, just serve communion because communion belongs to the church. It's not just our, our blood family, but our family of faith that primarily defines who and how we serve this meal too. So in our, in our own context, when we serve communion, it is always authorized in some way by the leadership of our church in the same way that Jesus administered the sacrament, administered the Last Supper to his disciples. We copy his example in doing so. Now, we do authorize more than just a pastor, even more than just an elder to serve the sacrament where that's appropriate, but it always comes with the authorization of the church. God is our host at the Last Supper. And one thing I especially want you to take away from this is that the power of the supper is not contained in what I bring to the table, but in the God who makes the table for me and for you. Secondly, loyalty to Jesus is key for the meal to benefit us. I like that word loyalty here. I'm encompassing faith with it. Faith in Jesus, but especially as expressed in loyalty, is the key thing that we bring to this table. That's sort of a strange thing to bring. I don't know if you've ever been invited to dinner by a friend or a family member. If someone invites you to dinner, what, is, what do you usually say right off that you say, okay, yes, I can come, then what can I bring, right? You guys, you're so polite. I love it. But yeah, what can I bring? But Jesus is not saying, hey, you're going to make a meaningful contribution to this meal. Yeah, you bring the salad, or you bring the juice. or No, what Jesus is saying is, you just bring your trust in me. I think that's kind of a neat. I kind of want to do dinner with people like that. If I invite someone over to my house, you don't bring anything. You just bring your friendship. Because that's what I'm after tonight, or whenever. You don't just have to share dinner. You could share lunch or breakfast, I suppose. Just bring your friendship. That's, in a lot of ways, what Jesus is calling on us to do here. But here's why we say this. So remember, Jesus says, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. This is verse 21. And the disciples were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me, which was all of them, by the way. And he said, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, you have said so. Which again, no one would have known what Jesus was saying at the time. You have said so. It's 
pretty ambiguous and vague. But here's what I want you to pick up. All throughout this meal, the disciples love to call Jesus, in Greek, kurios, which means Lord. But Judas doesn't use the word Lord. He uses instead, here, did you catch it? Uh, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. You know who called Jesus Rabbi throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew were his enemies. This is a literary device that Matthew's using for us to see that Judas never brought Jesus his loyalty and his faith. And as he shared fellowship with Jesus at the table, it resulted in Jesus' pronouncement, it would be better for you, Judas, if you had never been born. Loyalty to Jesus is key for the meal to benefit us. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, notes that divisions in the Corinthian church around this meal had real physical repercussions. He said, you have been doing this wrong, and that's why some of you are sick, and even why some of you have died. It would be better for you to not have been born. You are not primarily bringing to this meal your loyalty, your faith in Jesus, but the gifts of the meal make it worth the preparation, even even the risk that's there. First, the Last Supper is a moment, communion is a moment of profound fellowship. Note what Jesus and the disciples are doing. They're sharing a family meal together. Grant Osborne, in writing on this passage, he describes what happens at the Passover, and he says this, He says, the people, they'd come to Jerusalem, and they would gather in the outer temple court in companies to slaughter the Passover victims, the lambs. The priests formed two rows with gold and silver basins, respectively. The blood was caught in the basins and passed from hand to hand to be thrown on the altar. All was done to the singing of the Hallel, which are Psalms 113 to 118. We don't know if Jesus was there for that part of the preparation. But that evening, after they had been to the temple, because this was a national celebration, all the people would then go home and celebrate the Passover meal and eat the lamb that they had sacrificed. Notice that this apostolic band, as a rabbi and his disciples, constituted a family for celebrating the festival. A family could designate any integrally related group, and a rabbi-disciple family could celebrate together with the rabbi acting as father to the group. Jesus and his disciples were all from Galilee, and they didn't have their nuclear families, their, their parents and their brothers and sisters and their children with them. But they could still celebrate as a family. And when we do the communion meal together... It's a way of expressing and living that we are family in Jesus. This is the whole reason for Paul's criticism in 1 Corinthians 11. Remember I just said, he says, hey, there there are consequences if you don't do this right. Well, what is it that they were doing wrong in the church in Corinth? So 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. 
the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and I believe at least some of it. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. Because actually when the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper, it was in the context of dinner together. They would, you know, the leader would stand up and they'd do the bread and then they'd eat dinner and then they'd do the cup and they'd pray and they'd worship and, and that would be that. And Paul was saying what's happening is you come together, you start the meal, and then some of you who are wealthy bring these wonderful picnic baskets full of food, more than you can eat in fine food, and you're eating next to people who have nothing. And you're not sharing. And one is going hungry, and the other is having a feast. Shall I praise you, Paul says? Certainly not in this matter. This is a family meal. How can you behave like this, Paul says? So when we come together to to eat this meal, part of our practice ought to be to actually examine our relationships with each other. As the bread and the juice are coming out, Am I in a positive relationship with these people in my church around me? Are we really a family of faith? How am I contributing to that? How am I, how am I breaking that family relationship? What's my involvement? Who do I need to call back? Who do I need to ask for forgiveness? Who do I need just to seek deeper relationship with? By the way, of course, uh, even in a smaller church like ours, we've probably got about 50, 60 people here this morning. Folks, I know you're not going to be best friends with everybody here. Nobody can pull that off. That's not what we're asking. That's not what Jesus is asking. Instead, he's saying, do you have a healthy relationship with the people surrounding you? Inasmuch as, as you're in contact with them. When we take communion together, part of our practice ought to be to examine our relationships with each other. And further, when we practice this meal, we're actively and purposefully practicing the communion of the saints that we affirm in the Apostles' Creed. You remember we get to the end, they're kind of a whole, we start with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ, and here's who he was and what he did. We say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Sometimes those last ones get lost a little bit. But what we're affirming and what the church has affirmed all throughout its existence is the doctrine of the communion of the saints is meaningful both in relation to space and to time. Now, in relation to time, it's taken to mean the fellowship of Christians in every age, past, present, and future. They are my family because we're all in Jesus together. And not only this, but one day we will all be together worshiping the Lord in heaven. We will know people we've never met before because we were separated by time. In relation to space, the doctrine means that all true Christians are united in fellowship with each other regardless of nationality or language, social status, culture. We all are family in Jesus. The whole church everywhere through time and space has a real fellowship together. I love the idea that every time we celebrate this meal, we are in communication somehow, at least because we're doing the same thing. 
with the Christians who have come before us and the Christians who come after us, with the Christians who are down the street doing the same thing, with the Christians who are across the world doing the same thing, with Christians who are speaking English and Christians who are speaking Spanish and Christians who are speaking Chinese and Tagalog and anything else. We are related to all of them through faith in Jesus Christ. And this meal is an expression of that. And this is part of why we would never serve communion to only part of a worshiping body. So, for example, at a wedding, we wouldn't give communion to just the bride and the groom. I don't know. You've probably been at a wedding sometime when that's happened. They may do that more often in the Catholic Church. But in our own church, we would never, ever do that. And I apologize if I messed up on the Catholics. I really don't know. I should have just left them out of it. We would never do that because communion is a family meal. Jesus knew who Judas was. He knew what Judas was about to do. And yet he gave him the bread and he gave him the cup. When I go do hospital visitations or when I visit someone who can't come to church, uh, sometimes we serve communion in those places. And when we do, we always ask, we say, anyone who's here who has faith in Jesus Christ, if you would like to participate with us, you are invited to do that. Because that's what this meal is for. It's for the family to share. So the Last Supper, uh, first, is a moment of profound fellowship. And secondly, the Last Supper is a remembrance, invitation, and participation in God's great rescue. And uh, Jesus says, this is my body. This bread is my body, which is for you. In Deuteronomy 16.3, in the Old Testament, talking again about the Exodus, he says, Do not eat your Passover meal with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. They're saying when you take the bread, you are reenacting a part of that Passover meal. This is what Jesus was communicating to, or this is what the Passover meal communicated to the people of Israel. When you eat the bread, you are remembering and reliving the haste with which you were rescued. And Jesus, when he says, this bread is my body, which is given for you, Jesus is saying, somehow, my body is the sacrifice, like that Passover lamb, that is going to make you right with God, and you have to partake of that. You have to benefit from my Sacrifice. You have to take that inside of yourselves by faith. We are remembering what Jesus did for us. We are being invited to participate in it. And then we actually are participating in a sense. We're saying, by faith, I'm taking advantage of Jesus' death on the cross to be forgiven for my sin. Not because we, that bread goes inside us and spreads forgiveness in my body but because we are proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done. It is an act of faith to eat the bread, or it's of no use at all. Further, taking that bread inside ourselves symbolizes the union of Christians with the death of Jesus. Here is my broken body for you. I accept it, I take it, and Jesus is now a part of me. Just as that bread will be digested and spread throughout my body, providing energy. So am I taking in Christ's sacrifice. It's done by faith. 
Our salvation is done by faith. That's what God requires of us. But it is nurtured by communion, by the supper. Combined with the Passover and communion, Jesus' death that affects our great rescue from slavery to sin and death is profoundly illustrated. The sacrifice of his body taken into me, giving me new life. The blood in Exodus 24.8, again, explaining what's happening in the Passover. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's a gory scene, isn't it? They sacrifice the animal, and Moses tries to get as many people wet with that blood as he can. As a symbol that they could touch and feel. You are claimed by the blood. You are healed by the blood. Now, this idea, the blood, is linked to the four cups of the Jewish Passover. Like I said, they had four cups of wine. And in Hebrew tradition, those four cups of wine are linked to four blessings from Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out, that's number one, from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Each cup they would take would be about one of these things. I will take you as my own people and be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And a similar thing is happening in communion. Jesus is taking those four cups and in a sense combining them into one and saying your relationship with God is restored, is made right, is forever because Jesus has made a new covenant for you by his blood. He is the life that was given so that you can have peace with God. Is this meal for you? Well, Jesus says uh, this again in Matthew chapter 26. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You don't get the sense that Jesus is saying, I want this to be limited to just you 12. Well, actually 11, because Judas is out in here. Does 11 constitute a many? I, I don't think so. Jesus isn't even just saying, as the disciples probably would have expected, this is for all the faithful, the faithful remnant of Israel. Right? It's just the, the people in Israel who've got it right and are doing it well. No, it's poured out for many. Jesus is saying, in effect, if you want this blood to be effective for you, I'm not turning you away. It is for many. So what happens during communion? God is at work by the power of the Holy Spirit for us. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is providing this meal and administering it for us through the people he has called. It's received all we bring, right? We say, well, what do I bring to the meal? Just our faith, our loyalty fully given to Jesus. As one more song said, Jesus paid it all. 
This meal deepens our fellowship with each other because it reminds us that we are family. And finally, this meal nurtures our faith by taking these these ideas and things that we can't touch, that we can't feel, that sometimes we struggle to believe. And Jesus left it to us so we would know, just as surely as you eat this bread, so my body was given for you. Just as surely as you drink this cup, so you have a new covenant in my blood. Not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done. Now just trust me. Just trust me. Sometimes we come to church or, or we have an experience and it touches us deeply. Doesn't We have an emotional, a spiritual reaction to it. Those are good experiences, aren't they? And I know for myself, those experiences, there are things I hold on to in different parts of my life. I remember when I felt that way, or I remember when God showed me that thing. But the vast majority of our Christian life is more like uh, walking in the rain somewhere, isn't it? Uh, a friend of mine, I went back when the Lord of the Rings movies came out. Uh, a friend of mine talked about, you know, I tried reading those books, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring and all that. It was so boring. They were just walking in the rain all the time. And, yeah, it does feel like that. I mean, Tolkien was from England, right? That's what they do. They're walking in the rain all the time. But that's also where the most important parts of life are lived, aren't they? You can't have that incredible moment, spiritual insight, that incredible uh, epiphany without all of the dull moments that came before it. Not only this, God's work is not limited to the times when we feel it. I've discovered that in my own life. I'm curious how many of you have experienced that as well. Eugene Peterson was another Presbyterian pastor. Uh, He wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Sounds sort of like walking in the rain, doesn't it? And that was how he chose to describe the Christian life. The reason I bring this up, and I'm going to close with this, we come together and we eat the bread and we drink the cup. I know a lot of us come looking and hoping for a great spiritual experience when we do that. And sometimes that's exactly what we find. And thank, thank the Lord. Praise God for that. But sometimes it feels more like walking in the rain. Sometimes it feels more like a long obedience in the same direction. But that doesn't mean God isn't working. Because remember... What do you have to bring to the table? Just your faith. The rest is God's business. And he will make it effective in its time. Piggybacks nicely off of where we were with baptism last week, doesn't it? Where we said baptism is not primarily about your declaration, but about God's declaration over you. Which is why we usually, why we don't in our tradition Rebaptize. If you've been rebaptized, by the way, I've been rebaptized because I didn't know any better. Uh, and if you've been rebaptized somewhere, you know, we don't think that you're bad <laughs> or that was a terrible thing that you did. But we think it is better to say, I'm not going to be baptized again because what's important in my baptism is what God declared over me, not what I declared in my baptism. And God did declare something which is why you might be seeking, why you might be thinking, I need to mark this moment in my life. No matter how much you meant or didn't mean your first baptism, God meant it. 
and that's why you're here. Same at this table. You might have meant it more or less, you might have felt it more or less, but God meant it, and that's the important.